and that is whose church is it? I mean, when we talk about our, our church, whose church is it really? Who, who is building the church? And, and, and the, amen. And the question in itself might seem to some too simplistic or, or too obvious. But the answer is critical to understand what our role and what our goal as a church is. And so, of course, we know <clears throat> that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, and, and sometimes I think when we look at that verse we get the idea of the gates of hell not prevailing against it, that, that we are on the defense and Satan is on the offense. And that's not the way it is. The church is on the offense moving forward, and the gates of hell cannot stop us. We are going to storm forward and, and uh, reach the community for Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell will not prevail, will not stop us, from going forward. So it's Jesus' church, and he is building his church. And that's the starting point, because we can, we can very, very easily create a church environment which has the best music and the best programs, but lose out on what the church was meant to be and what it was called to do. And I'm afraid there are, a lot of, there are a lot of services going on all over our community today that have good programs, and they have good music, and they have good this and good that, but they are not accomplishing what God has called them to do as a church. And so how does, how does Christ build his church? That's a key in, ingredient. I mean, we want to be a church that Christ builds. We want to be a church that is impacting the community for Jesus Christ and bringing glory to him and not just building a, 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 a large group of people. We want to see people saved. We want to see people growing. We want to see people doing what God has called us to do. And so he builds his church. He builds it by empowering believers to submit and obey to his teaching in Scripture. And that's why these three books contain significant instruction and encouragement on what God desires from his church. So now we know that Peter, uh, or, or that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. But why did he write it? What, what was the purpose of writing this particular letter? And understanding the purpose, I believe, will give us insight on what this book really is trying to say. And I think then later on, it will help us in applying it accurately to our lives. And that's why it's so important not to skip over the beginning parts of a book. It's, it's easy sometimes when you, you read things like Apostle Paul of Jesus Christ by the commandments of God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, our hope to Timothy, a true son of the faith. And we read through that and we say, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get to the important part of this passage. And so you see, to miss that, what is important here? So, so we want to carefully look at this particular passage of Scripture. Now, I saw a cartoon once that showed, uh, showed a picture of a woman laying in her sickbed, obviously in misery, 
uh, in the sink were, were stacked piles of, of dishes. There, uh, beside the sink, there were piles of dirty clothes that needed to be washed. There was a huge baskets of clothes that needed to be ironed that was setting nearby. There were two dil- dirty children who were, were fighting in one corner. In the other corner, there was a cat that was licking spilt milk up off of the floor. And the smiling woman who was standing in the doorway uh, had this caption above her that said, well, Florence, if there's anything I can help you, don't hesitate to give me a call. (laughs) And what a picture of the local church. I mean, really, when you think about it, pastors and church staff are overwhelmed with work. More, more needy people are crying out for their attention than they have time for. And Sunday schools and other youth programs are lacking workers. And visitors need personal calls. And new people need someone to befriend them. And a missionary program uh, needs uh, dedicated workers to help out there. And facilities need maintenance and improvement. And, and even some who are involved seem to be committed only when it's convenient for them to commit it and yet people are often saying pastor if there's anything you need done just let me know and it's like it's all over the place let's just look at what needs to be done the fact is God does not save us so that we can set and watch other people minister we are saved in order to serve And just as there is no such thing as a non-functioning member of our human body, so there ought to be no such thing as a non-functioning member of the body of Christ. We all are to be involved. And so if God has saved you from your sin, then he has called you to serve him in some way in accordance with your gifts and the abilities that he has given to you. So what often happens is you, you, you hear this truth taught, and, and so you take a stab at getting involved in doing something for the Lord. But, but not very far into the process, you find yourself in over your head. And, and you thought you would be serving in line with your gifts and your abilities, but you find yourself overwhelmed with inadequacies as you face a situation not in in line with or or far beyond your gifts and abilities. You thought you would be having a wonderful time of fellowship as you were serving the Lord with others in the body, but instead you find that your fellow Christians are being a little bit petty and criticizing you on all these these picayune things, you know. You thought everyone would like you, but, but they're not being very nice to you. You thought everyone would appreciate your contribution, but instead you haven't heard a word of thanks yet. And you thought serving the Lord would kind of be fun, but you discovered that it's not, it's, it's not really fun in the way you thought. It's kind of fun like war, you know, would be fun. <laughs> it's not an easy thing. And so Timothy found himself in that situation. He had been a teenager in a home with a pagan father and a Jewish mother living in the town of Lystra in what is today south-central Turkey. His mother and his grandmother 
had taught him in the scriptures, but, but he didn't know that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah until a rabbi by the name of Paul came to town. He knew the Old Testament. He knew all of that. He had been well-trained in that, but yet he did not know that Jesus was Messiah. And Paul shows up in town, and Paul, Paul, Paul healed a man who had been lame from his birth, he preached the gospel, but then he was stoned to death, or supposedly to death, by a fickle mob. He was dragged out of the city and thought to be dead. Amazingly, he got up and he went back into the city, and he didn't leave till the next day. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I think if I'd been stoned and drugged out of the city as if I was dead, I think if I could even crawl away, I would not crawl in the direction of the city unless I was just out of my head, you know, and maybe Paul was. But he went back into the city, and not only did he go back, he said, I'll leave when I'm ready to leave. He didn't leave till the next day. And so, so this, is, this is the guy. And, and so later, he, create, he, he courageously returned, and he strengthened those who had believed, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations. And yet so often we think that if we're going to serve in a church, everything should be real easy and, and, and just simple and no problems. And it's just, it just not very realistic <laughs> at times, sadly. But Timothy was one who had believed. And so in the years that follow, he grew in the Lord and was highly regarded by the church for his ministry in, in their midst. And so then the apostle Paul came through town again, and this time he invited Timothy to join him in his itinerant ministry. So what an opportunity for this young boy, Timothy, to travel and serve with a courageous man of God who had led Timothy to faith in Jesus Christ. So Timothy, Timothy would have been in his early 20s at this particular time in his life, and Paul was nearing the age of 50. For about the next 18 years until Paul was beheaded by Nero, Timothy served with Paul as a devoted son would serve his father. Now, the book of Acts ends, and uh, we studied that a while back, but it ends with Paul in prison in Rome. And there's good reason to believe that he was released around AD 62, shortly after writing the, what we know as the prison epistles. The prison epistles would be Ephesians and Colossians, Philemon and Philippians. Those would be the prison epistles that we have in our Bible. And so it is believed that he wrote those while he was imprisoned in Rome. And shortly after that, he was released. And Timothy had been in Rome with, with Paul. We know that from Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, Philemon chapter 1. And so perhaps after Paul's release the two men made their way back to Ephesus together, among other places, where Paul left Timothy to deal with some matters while he went on to Macedonia, to Philippi and Thessalonica. And so Timothy was left there, uh, back there at, at Ephesus. So from there, sometime between the late 62 and early 64, Paul wrote 1 Timothy to his young co-worker, in order to encourage him in his ministry there at Ephesus and also to give apostolic instruction on the church life 
for the whole congregation. And we see that in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy and verse 15. So serving, serving Christ with and under the Apostle Paul sounds wonderful and it sounds exciting. But the thing is, is it was not idealistic. If you, follow the, if you follow Paul's ministry, you see that it was not idealistic. Paul, Paul's early message, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, proved all too true. So Timothy often felt like he was in far over his head. Timid and shy by personality, he was not inclined towards conflicts. And yet, he often found himself in the midst of conflicts. He was, he was inclined to back off rather than to confront difficult people in difficult situation. And many times, he just simply felt like quitting. I can't do this. I can't, I can't deal with these people. I can't deal with this situation. It's, it's too much for me, and I just, I just want to walk away from it all. And this was one of those times. We often hear, hear people talk about the New Testament church as if it were nearly perfect. I don't know which Bible they're reading, but my Bible shows that there were some serious problems in many New Testament churches. And Ephesus was a town rife with sexual immorality and occult practices. As often happened in such places, the church was being plagued by some false teachers, and, and, and next week or in the weeks to come, we'll, we'll try to identify some of those. But Timothy's task is, is summed up in verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1 here, when Paul says, as I urge you, when I, when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. <clears throat> so on the surface, that sounds simple, doesn't it? But as you can imagine, people are not, not detached from their strange doctrines. In fact, people get emotionally attached to their strange doctrine. And when your job is to confront their doctrines, they take it personally. Why are you attacking me? Why are you trying to stop this? Why are you doing this? These are good things. So you can see where Timothy finds himself. You kind of get the picture. So here, here is this timid, shy, peace-loving uh, ordinary type of a man who finds himself in a church where some men were teaching some strange things and it was Timothy's job to confront them and to make them stop. And so no doubt there, there were people in the church who, who liked these men and who thought that their teaching was helpful and good. How dare you, you young kid coming in here and, and trying to disrupt things and say that these men are wrong in what they are doing? These men have been here longer than you have been here, and they'll be here after, you, after you're gone. I've heard that phrase a lot. <laughs> so Paul wrote this letter to boister Timothy 
And the truth he was proclaiming in this church that had been infected with the false teachers and the heretical doctrines that were being taught. So the message of the book can be summed up in the command that we need to guard the deposit of sound doctrine. And so in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul tells Timothy that he is depositing, literally depositing the command to him to stay at Ephesus and to teach the truth. Now, he doesn't say, have fun at the Sunday school picnic, but rather fight the good fight. And he repeats the command at the end of the book. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been deposited with you. Guard it. Fight the good fight. It's not a Sunday school picnic every Sunday. You're going to have to fight the fight because you are in charge. You have been charged with guarding the doctrine. And do not let it get watered down. And do not let heresy come into the church. Amen. And so that is our responsibility as a pastor, to guard the doctrine and to keep the church from drifting into these areas. And sometimes it's not a fun task. And sometimes people get upset. A number of themes occur under the overall theme of guarding the deposit of sound doctrine. The theme of sound doctrine or teaching occurs repeatedly in this book, as well as the warning against turning aside to false teachings. We'll see that over and over again as we go through. So with, with that as kind of an overview of the book, let's look at Paul's greeting in verse 1 and 2. And I think that we can draw some lessons from this, that God has saved us and inscripted us into service so that we might bring forth two tr true children of faith. Now, that word inscripted is an important word there for us to understand because I think sometimes we think that we are volunteer laborers in the church. We are not. If we are saved, we have been drafted into service. We didn't volunteer for it. We have been inscripted. So verse 1, where Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior, shows us how God saves us and then drafts us into this service. Verse 2, which addresses Timothy as Paul's two, true child in the faith, shows us that the goal of our service is to reproduce ourselves spiritually. I'm afraid that there are a lot of people in church that don't understand that that is our responsibility. And that is the responsibility of the church is to teach you how to reproduce yourself, how to win another person to the Lord, how to disciple that person, how to help that person to become a person who will win another person to the Lord and train that person and that they will, and that continues on. And sometimes we get so lost in all of the programs of the church that we are constantly trying to buttonhole people to get in there and help because we got to keep all of these things balanced that we miss what the real responsibility of the church is. So Paul, Paul is, is helping us in this area as he's addressing Timothy. So the first thing that we need to see here is that God has saved us and drafted us into service. 
The, the, the foundation for any service we render to God must be the glorious truth that God has saved us. That has to be the beginning. Paul uses an unusual phrase in, in, in this verse uh, when he talks about God our Savior. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandments of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. So this description occurs six times in the, in the pastoral epistles. We see it here. We see it in chapter 2 and verse 3, chapter 4 and verse 10. We see it in Titus in chapter 1 and verse 3, in chapter 2 and verse 10, in chapter 3 and verse 4. And nowhere else in Paul's writing do we see that phrase. But it's in these, these areas here. And that's, we are going to, by the time we get all through our studies, we're going to understand fully what he is talking about here. So it occurs elsewhere only in Jude 25 with a similar expression, and that is God my Savior. And uh, in, 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 in Luke chapter 1 and verse 7. In, in, in fact, the word Savior is only used 24 times in the New Testament including 10 times in the pastoral epistles and five times in 2 Peter. The designation as God as our Savior is rooted in the Old Testament. Now, that's important for us to understand. But significantly, <coughs> when you come to the New Testament, Jesus is designated as Savior, and, and, and we know that in, in Luke chapter uh, 2 and, and verse 11, which shows that Jesus is God. And, and, and his very name means Yahweh saves. Now, the angel explained to Joseph that the reason for naming the child in Mary's womb Jesus is that he would save his people from their sins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Now, all of this is significant and important, and, and, and it's there for a reason, is because one reason Paul has emphasized this term of God in the pastoral epistles is that the corrupt emperor Nero had, assigned, had assumed the title Savior of the World for himself. That was Nero. He said... I am the Savior of the world. This was the day that Paul was teaching and preaching and Timothy was teaching. And so Paul is, Paul is concerned, Paul, Paul is concerned that, that, um, that, that there would be others who would, would kind of follow what Nero was saying about himself. And, and, and he didn't want people to follow that. So here was, this, here was this, this proud man saying that he was the savior of the world. And he was boasting about that. And so, so this, this is a truth that constantly needs to be reaffirmed that Nero and no one else is God. And yet, oftentimes, proud people think that because they are worthy or by their own efforts of good deeds or power that they can save themselves from God's wrath against their sin. But the message of the cross of Jesus Christ humbles human pride by stating that no flesh shall boast before God. 
So we need to proclaim clearly the message that people are lost and they need a savior, not just that they need a little improvement or they need a little boost, a little bit of help in their, in, in their walk. See, the gospel message is not if your life lacks fulfillment or if you're having a few problems, then try Jesus. No, the gospel message is apart from Christ, you are lost, perishing under God's judgment. You cannot save yourself. God does not save anyone who, who's worthy because none are worthy. But in his grace, God does save unworthy sinners who take refuge in Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. So trust Jesus. Amen. That's the only way to go to heaven. Now, through the years, it has been my great concern um, um, that, that some people in the church that I have pastored may not know Christ as their Savior. And, and that, that is a concern to me because sometimes I fear that there are some people who get into the church and they think, well, if I just serve, if I just do enough, if I do this or I give my money, or I, that I can get to heaven. I, I can prove that, that I am worthy to go to heaven. And there's no way. There isn't, any, there isn't enough service that you can do to earn your way to heaven. So Paul, Paul himself had been there. He, he was zealous in religion, keeping the law outwardly. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6, advancing beyond many of his contemporaries. But then, then God who had set Paul apart from his mother's womb and called him by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul was gloriously saved, according to his testimony in Galatians chapter 1, 13 to 15. You see, it is possible to be raised in the church, to be outwardly religious, to be zealous in what you think is serving God, but not to be saved. It is possible. So make sure that God is truly your savior, and then you can serve him. And then secondly, God has drafted those he has saved into service. If God has saved you from the awful judgment that you deserve, then you are not your own. You have been bought with a, a, a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You are under orders now. And so Paul did not dream up the idea of becoming an apostle. It wasn't his career objective determined by taking a number of occupational and personal tests. He was an apostle According to the commandment of God, our Savior. That means that those who are saved are drafted, not volunteers for Jesus. Now, in Sunday school, I'm, I'm afraid that sometimes we do a great disservice for children in that we teach them how to sing a song about being a volunteer for Jesus. I'm a volunteer for Jesus. Have you ever sung that song? A volunteer for Jesus. The underlying notion behind that is that you can choose to serve if you want to, but it's optional. 
But service is not an option for those who so incline. Serving Jesus is mandatory for all who have been saved by Jesus. You don't volunteer for Jesus' army. You are drafted into that army. The only question then becomes, will you be a faithful servant or will you be an unfaithful servant to the Lord? And so we need to be careful here because the church in our day has created a false distinction between those who are supported financially by their ministry and those who are not. The former are thought to be called to serve God, and so they're paid. And the latter are not called, they are just laymen who volunteer some of their spare time. But Paul didn't know any such distinction. If you go by this system, the Apostle Paul was a layman because he supported himself in ministry most of his life. And none of us would say the Apostle Paul was a layman. The teaching of the Bible is not that some Christians are called to serve God and others are not called to serve God. Every Christian is called to serve God. The matter of how you are supported may depend upon the type of service to which you are called. And so those who labor at preaching and teaching and, and those sent out as missionaries have a right to be supported. And Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 5 in verses 17 to 18. He also talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 1 to 14. But God hasn't saved, saved anyone uh, so they can just sit around and do nothing. Every person God saves is drafted into service for him according to how God has gifted him, First Peter tells us in chapter 4. Otherwise, why would we be here? If he didn't have a job for us, when he saved us, he'd just take us glory. We are here because there's a job to do. Does that mean that the service is easy and without struggle? Not at all. Serving Christ means waging war against the spiritual forces of darkness and warfare is not easy. Sometimes warriors get discouraged and Timothy was prone to discouragement. And so Paul shows him from the outset that Christ himself is our hope in serving. Christ is our hope there in verse 1. What a great phrase. Our hope is not in a religion. Our hope is not in a human being. Our hope is not in a better world. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so Christ Jesus himself is our hope. And biblical hope is not an uncertain wish for a, a better tomorrow. Biblical hope is a certainty. It's certain because our hope rests on the resurrected Christ, whose bodily resurrection from the grave is attested in fact through history. And so our hope believes in the reigning Christ seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority. Our hope waits for the returning Christ who gives us his sure word that he will return bodily to rule the nations with a rod of iron in Acts chapter 1 verse 11 and Revelation 19:15. Hallelujah, what a savior. 
because such a Savior is our hope, we can serve him and know that our labor is not in vain, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. So what is the aim of our service? Ultimately, it is to bring glory to God. But one of the main ways that we do this is by working to bring people into submission to God as his true children. So this is <clears throat> the second point, our aim of, the aim of our service is to bring forth two tr true children in faith. In verse 2 there, he says to Timothy, a true son in the face, faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul addresses Timothy as his true child in the faith, or in faith means faith in the gospel. Uh, the word true points to the genuineness of, of Timothy's conversion as attested by his years of faithfulness to the Lord. Now, modern evangelistic methods teach us to follow up a person who has prayed to receive Christ by giving him immediate assurance of his salvation. Whether you've gone through that before or not, but, but they say you need to give them that assurance of salvation immediately after they pray. But, it, but when you think about it, it takes longer than a few minutes or even a few months to determine if a person's profession of faith in Christ is genuine. Sometimes it's not genuine. And there are those who say, well, if you just say that I believe, then you're okay and everything's fine and you just, you're in. It's good. That's not what the Bible says. Yes, it is by, it, it is by grace, to be sure. There is no merit that will get us to heaven. But sometimes there's no genuine expression. In fact, Paul expressed concern for the Corinthians and the Galatians that they may have believed in vain, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 and Galatians chapter 3 and verse 4. He said in Galatians 4, 19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. You see, they had professed Christ, but Paul was not certain that they were true children of God. He wasn't ready to give them their assurance of salvation. He says, I am labor. I'm in labor pain again because I don't believe that your first profession of faith was a genuine. Paul urged the Corinthians, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Does that sound like just, just saying, I believe you're automatically in? doesn't sound that way here. He's not attacking grace. But he's attacking this, this superficial, just, yep, I, I believe, and I'm okay. Paul exhorts his readers, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. 2 Peter 1.10. So John, John wrote his epistle to give his readers a number of tests by which they could know that they had eternal life. I encourage you to read 1 John this afternoon or sometime this week, but especially chapter 5 and verse 13. 
You see, Timothy had grown up in a home with godly grandmother and mother who had taught him the scriptures that led to salvation through faith in Christ. But he had not believed in Christ until salvation, uh, unto salvation until he heard Paul preaching. They taught him all the scriptures, all the right things, all the things that looked forward to Christ. But it wasn't until Paul came and preached Jesus and him crucified that T- Timothy was saved. Timothy's experiences show that even if you're in a a mixed marriage as a believing parent, you you need to teach your children the scriptures with a view uh, to their salvation. So God may may use you or he may use uh, your, your teaching coupled with someone else's preaching to bring your child to faith in Christ. So how can we know if we are true children of God? Many sermons could be, be preached on, on this. So, so I want to just be brief here this morning. Just, just a, a few minutes, just touch on, on a few things here. Number one, true children know the grace of God. <clears throat> grace is the sweetest sound to those who are true children of God because it means that he pours out his favor on the, on the undeserving. He's poured that out on me. He has called sinners, not the righteous. And so grace is a wonderful part of our salvation. That is how we're saved, by grace, through faith in Christ. Number two, true children know the mercy of God. In his greeting, Paul addresses this, this word only here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2. The addition in some manuscripts in Titus really rests on a weak manuscript support, if you see that there. But here in in verse 2, he said, grace, mercy, peace. So grace. Um, While grace points to God's forgiveness to the guilty, his mercy points to his kindness to the miserable or helpless. So mercy is part of it too. Every true child of God knows the mercy of God. Number three, true children know the peace of God. God's peace is more than just inner calm, although it is that. But it refers to the overall well-being of a person who has been reconciled to God. Such a person experiences God's blessing even in times of sorrow and suffering. It's a peace that surpasses human understanding, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. God's children know his peace. But then number four, true children know God as father, as father. The Bible reveals God as the kind, caring father of his true children. And so even if you had a harsh or unloving earthly father, or maybe you didn't have any father at all in the home, you can come to know God as your true heavenly father as revealed in his word. And one of the marks of believers is that they know God as father. And then number five, true children know Christ Jesus as Lord. The distinction between Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord is a false one. We need to understand that. He is clearly both Savior and Lord. If you are not living each day by yielding to Jesus as your Lord, 
then you ought to question whether he's truly your Savior. He is Lord of all. Many will say to him at the judgment, Lord, Lord, we did many things in your name. But he will say to them those awful words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. True children know Christ Jesus both as Savior and Lord. Do you know God as your Savior? If not, do not rest until you do know him. If so, then you know that he has saved you and he saved you to serve. The aim of that service is to bring glory to him by you becoming his true child in faith and by you bringing others to become true children in faith, as Paul did with Timothy. D.L. Moody was an uneducated shoemaker whom God saved. And I I would imagine probably all of us in the room here has heard of D.L. Moody at some time, but a man named Reynolds told about the first time that he ever saw D.L. Moody before Moody became famous. Moody was in a little shanty that had been abandoned by a saloon keeper And he was holding a little small black boy in his arms, reading to him the story of the prodigal son. Moody couldn't even read all of the words that were there in the Bible as he was reading to this little boy. And so he skipped a lot of the words that he didn't know how to pronounce. And Reynolds thought to himself, if God can ever use such an instrument as that for his honor and glory, it will certainly astonish me. And yet we all know that God used Moody in an amazing way to bring about revival around the world. He can use you, and he can use me that way, just as he used shy, timid Timothy. There's no excuse. We have been saved to serve. So let's get busy. Let's pray.